0: Hi and welcome to The Second Location. I'm your host Holly and in this episode we are talking about the murders of Sarah Harbison, Jennifer Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers, commonly referred to as the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. We're going to be focusing on the initial investigation and all of the witnesses that night in the yogurt shop. Okay, so with four bodies at the scene and three burned beyond the point of recognition, the police need some help identifying the victims. Now, the manager of the yogurt shop was called and she could not identify the girls visually. So she consulted the work schedule and saw that Jennifer and Eliza were scheduled that night. So right there, we know who two of the victims are. When Barbara, Jennifer and Sarah's mom, is told about the fires, she asks about, quote, little Amy. And that is when the investigators learn who the fourth victim was. And then Barbara has to call her ex-husband, Mike, to tell him that both of their children, their only daughters, had been murdered. When Mike gets that call, all he can do is scream in horror and disbelief. His second wife, the girl's stepmother, she had to call Barbara back because she couldn't understand anything Mike was saying. When the police show up at Amy's parents' house, they knew immediately that something bad had happened to Amy, but they never thought that it was the worst. They never thought that their sweet little girl was gone. Now, let's move to talk about the investigation. With the girls identified and their parents informed of their daughter's murders, the police start to look for witnesses, which begins with identifying and interviewing all the customers there were in the shop that evening that the police can find. Now, I'm going to talk about the customers and what they saw and basically go over a timeline of the evening. Sometime between 8.15 and 8.30, Lucella Jones stopped by the yogurt shop to get a takeaway for her husband because he just had dental surgery. Now, when she entered the shop, the only other customers were two teenage boys seated near the front door. The boys were looking at a small sack on the tabletop. One boy was seated with his back to Jones and she did not get a good look at him, but the other boys stood at the table facing Jones. She described him as between 14 and 17, between 5'4 and 5'7 and weighed between 130 and 140 pounds. His hair wasn't messy but it definitely wasn't clean cut either. She thought that they kind of had a hippie vibe. Now she doesn't see any food or drinks on the table but the boys seem to be filling with the contents of a paper bag located near the center of a table, kind of swirling it around. Now, whatever is in the contents of that bag, we're not sure. But it seemed like it, I mean, I want to say it made like a cracking noise as they were like mixing around, whatever it was. Kind of got the feeling like maybe it was marbles. I think this lady thought after the murders, maybe it had been bullets. But I mean, she never saw what's inside it. So no one has really any idea. Anyway. Lucilla Jones, she saw these boys, like I said, between 8.15 and 8.30. So that's about two and a half hours before closing. So it's not very close to the time of the fire. And no other customers that came in later mentioned these two boys at a table near the door. That's not to say that there couldn't have been people that came in earlier in the night to case the place, left, and came back. Completely possible. And while it seems like no one else sees these two boys that Lucilla Jones talks about, there are people that see some other questionable characters in the shop that night. So at nine o'clock, Jennifer went and picked Sarah and Amy up from the mall. Now she brings them back to the strip mall that housed the yogurt shop. And the younger girls grabbed a takeout pizza from a Gaddy's. I think it's located in the strip mall as well and ate it back at the yogurt shop. Now Eliza's mom, Maria, stops by the yogurt shop to check in with her daughter between 9.30 and 10. And while there, Eliza was on the phone. She's trying to convince her younger sister, Sonora, to stop by and see them at the shop. But the younger girl said she can't go to the shop. Normally, she would ride her bike ever because their dad wasn't home and she couldn't get his permission. And she wasn't going to go out without asking her dad first. And that is what I am telling you about these girls. Now, Sonora, she's not one of the victims, but, you know, she's Eliza's sister. She's not willing to go drive her bike to see her sister at the local yogurt shop without first being able to tell her dad what she's doing. Good kids. So anyway, while Maria is there, Eliza introduced her mother to Sarah and Amy, who were munching on pizza, you know, together over at a table. And while Maria was visiting her daughter, a man named Daryl Croft. And I'm telling you, I love how this guy's name is spelled because it's Daryl, but it's spelled like Pearl with a D. So I almost want to say Daryl. But it's it a Daryl? But everyone calls him Daryl. And I just think this is, maybe it's a Southern spelling. I don't know, but it's cute. He, now, he is a former military policeman and he owns a private security company. And he just popped into the shop that night and he was kind of a regular there. Now, the car he drove had a rack of blue lights mounted on the roof, much like a cop car. I mean, he used it for a security business. So that makes sense. Now he knew Maria and Eliza from the gym that they all attended. And that always adorable Eliza. She had bumped into Daryl at the gym months back. And when he didn't immediately place her familiar face, she reminded Daryl that I'm your yoga girl. I mean, seriously, that girl was so darn cute all the time. When Daryl entered the shop, he noticed a young man wearing a green military style jacket that looked like it had come from an army surplus store. Now, Daryl estimated this guy was in his early to mid-20s and he was between 5'10 and 6 feet tall and weighed about 155 to 170 pounds. Croft thought he looked fidgety and something just kind of seemed off about the young man. Now, Daryl, was a former military policeman and owner of a private security firm. And he's very confident on his ability to assess people and situations. And he just felt something was suspicious about this guy. Now, I do want to say, I think his ability to recognize somebody and maybe describe somebody after seeing them, I don't know if that's top-notch. Because I did just tell you that he bumped into Eliza at the gym. And while he, he recognized her as being familiar, he didn't recognize her as the girl from the yogurt shop. Which, to me, like, oh, I don't know. I'm just... I'm just calling into question your placing of faces a little bit because, I mean, Eliza was able to recognize him and how many customers does she have? I mean, he's only got how many yogurt girls, you know what I mean? But I'm not saying that he's not able to recall events of that night or anything like that. I'm just saying when it comes time to maybe IDing somebody out of a lineup, I don't know. It's just in the back of my mind, I think maybe he's not the best at that. And really, honestly, it's not even a dig at Daryl because like who the hell is? But I'm just saying... It just puts that little thought in my mind there. Okay, anyway, the young man turned to Daryl and asked him if he... If that was his car out there with the lights on top. And Daryl replied, yes. Then the young man follows up and asks if he was security or police. Now, Daryl replied that he owned a private security company. While at the same time, I'm pretty sure Daryl's probably thinking, what the hell does it matter to this Yahoo? You know, like, why are you questioning me? But anyway, the unknown man had been in line for a while and he kept letting other people go ahead of him while he reviewed the menu. When he told Daryl to go ahead of him, Daryl declined and told the young man to go on ahead. Now, after talking to Daryl, young man turned around, and Jennifer motioned for him to approach the counter, and he placed his order. Now, he ordered a 7-Up. Jennifer tells him that they only had Sprite. He agreed to the Sprite. Jennifer bagged up a can, handing it to Eliza to ring up. Now, I just want to say, that is a super weird order at a yogurt shop. Who goes to a strip mall yogurt shop for a single can of soda? He didn't even order yogurt. There's also a pizza place in this strip mall. I would think of even going in there for a can of soda before I'd go to the yogurt shop. I mean, this wasn't even a fountain drink. It seems like most people would just go to a convenience store and get a big gulp or whatever. And why the hell did he review the menu so long if he wasn't even going to order yogurt? And he let all those people go in front of him. And when he actually orders, he picks a soda that the shop doesn't even carry. Like maybe he had never really been looking at the menu, just kind of pretending. I mean, it's kind of weird, but I have a theory that's not sinister at all. I think maybe he wanted to ask either Eliza or Jennifer out on a date and he didn't want to do it when a lot of people were around. So he just keeps telling people, telling everyone to go ahead of him. I kind of think there's a good chance that this guy's just a red herring, that he's just hanging back because he wants to hit on the yogurt girls. I could be wrong. He very well could have killed him. I have no idea. I'm just saying sometimes after a crime, we think things we saw are more than what they were. So anyway, After the young guy pays for his soda, Croft sees him walk around the counter and pass through the door to the back room. And Daryl Croft, he asks Eliza where the young man was going. And she replied that he was going to the bathroom. Now, Daryl Croft, he replied that he didn't know that they had a restroom. Now, he says Eliza laughs. And according to him, Eliza said that the bathroom wasn't really open to the public, but the young man said he had to go, so she let him. Now, this isn't true. Legally, they were required to have public restrooms. I mean, it's an eating establishment. And in fact, the yogurt shop had both a men's and a woman's restroom that were available for customers. There were no separate employee restrooms, just the two for everybody to use. And the restrooms were located located through the back door, and immediately on the right-hand side. So that is the direction that this young man was going. So to me, it seems kind of odd that Eliza said they didn't have public restrooms. And maybe it was just a misremembrance on Daryl's part? I just don't see why she would say something that she knows not to be true in that situation. And because her saying that, if she did, it gives more of a sinister implication, potentially, to why that guy's going in that back room. You know, the implication that the man was going into a place of the shop where the public was not permitted, you know, it kind of implies that he could have had motivations for going back there that weren't exactly pure. Like, maybe he's going back there to hide. But honestly, I think it would have been hard to hide back there. It was pretty small and sparsely furnished. And this is all taking place between 9.30 and 10. So he would have to hide for like an hour until closing and the best hiding spot would be in the ceiling because you can't get up there. And it's actually an interesting thing to note. I'll come back to it again later, but all of the, I think it's all, but the strip mall, the businesses, you can access from the ceiling other businesses. Like you could go up through the ceiling in the yogurt shop crawl over and be in the party store this next door. Crawl a little further, be in the pet store or the pizza shop. So, I think that's something that we really have to consider in where these killers came into the building. It could have, they could have come down through the ceiling. And oh my God, isn't that just about the most frightening damn thing you hear? But, you know, I don't know how likely that is. I think it's probably more likely that the back door was either unlocked or propped open at this time to allow suspects to enter the shop once the front door had been locked at 1050. So that guy, he could be going back there to prop open that back door. He could be going back there to hide in the ceiling. Or another likely possibility is the killers could have come in through the front door as customers while the place was still open. So anyway, we'll get into all those possibilities, but I'm just saying this guy goes to the back room and Daryl's thinking, what the hell? But anyway, Daryl orders, but when his order's up, he hesitates to leave as he is concerned about What exactly that young guy is doing back there? I mean, he's still not out. And he goes back there before Daryl even places his order. But once his yogurts are made, it's getting a little, you know, he tries to linger, but it's getting a little awkward. So he leaves. But the young man had thrown him off so much that he actually went to leave without his yogurt, which made them all laugh. You know, Eliza's like, get on back here, Daryl, yogurt, you know? And ultimately, he left the shop with his yogurt. Now, keep in mind that Maria, Eliza's mom, was there during this whole interaction. Now, Daryl reported this encounter to the police immediately after he heard about the murders the next day. Honestly, news about this murders, this is all over Austin immediately. And Daryl would describe the young man's voice as being surprisingly deep, clear, And distinctive. He also noted that the young man had a long, pointy nose. He even volunteered to undergo hypnosis two years later to try to recall more memories, but he just wasn't successful. I applaud this Daryl Croft because I think he's just wants to do everything he can to try to remember the events of that night and try to help find whoever did this to these girls. And my heart goes out to him because I I feel like he's doing his best, and I think there's probably a little part of him that feels a little guilty and. In all honesty, that little part of him shouldn't feel guilty at all. Now, when arrests were made in 1999, he was shown a lineup of 14 men, including the photos of the four accused. And he was not able to identify the young man that he had seen that night out of that lineup. Now, keep in mind, these arrests were made about like eight, nine years after the murders take place. Now, shortly after Daryl left the shop, Maria also left, and not long after that, James Thomas and his wife stopped by, and this is Eliza's dad and her stepmother. Now, Jay chatted with his daughter about school And he noticed two girls in a booth with a pizza box, but he had never met the girls before, so he didn't recognize them. But this is almost certainly Sarah and Amy. I mean, Maria's mom had just seen them there eating pizza, you know, a few minutes before and no one gets a pizza and takes it to another restaurant to eat without having connections, you know, the no outside food thing. So I think he sees Sarah and Amy there. Now, Jay and his wife, they stay about 15 minutes and they did not see the young man that Kraft had noticed. After the murders, lots of customers come forward to describe their experiences that night. One saw a strange van outside the shop between 10.30 and 11. This could be important. You know, that's closer to the time when the murders happened. And at 10.30, one customer saw a Hispanic or white man sitting in an old car just waiting... And when the customer left the shop, the car was gone. Well, all of this could mean nothing. Maybe the guy was waiting on somebody that was buying something at a store in the strip mall. But honestly, at 1030, every place is closed except for the yogurt shop. But maybe someone was in there grabbing yogurt and somebody was waiting in the car. So, you know, that could have happened. At 1042, Eliza rings up the last sale of the night. Only one hour later, all four. Four girls would be dead. The customers were Tim Stryker and Margaret Sheehan. And according to them, there were only two other customers in the shop at this time. And Margaret described the two as large people. She honestly couldn't tell their genders. They were wearing large coats but she felt from their size that they were likely men and they were in hooded coats and they sat in the booth closest to the cash register. And at this time, Eliza was alone at the front counter because Jennifer had moved out to the seating area, you know, to start the closing up process, which included cleaning the dining area, placing chairs upside down on the tables after they're wiped off and refilling supplies like napkins, you know, that kind of stuff. So Margaret's order was filled first, and she took a seat at the booth next to the strangers and waited for Tim. Now, as she waited, she saw the reflection of the other customers, and she couldn't really see them well, but because of their size, like I said, she had assumed they were men. One was wearing a padded beige coat. That individual seemed larger, while the other one seemed thinner and had light brown hair, and as the men seemed huddled over the table closely to each other, like they're really huddled down close, she kind of thought maybe they were homosexuals, but that was really just a guess on her part because of just how close these two guys were to each other. Then Tim went to sit with Margaret and neither of them noticed Amy or Sarah, who very well may have been in the back helping clean stuff up for closing time. There were lids and containers for toppings in the sink in the back room. And the pizza box was found on a table in the back room as well. So the younger girls might have been back there washing up. Tim said to Margaret that they should take their yogurt to go as the shop was clearly closing. You know, he wanted to get out there, let these girls get their, you know, clothes up and be able to get home. Now, Margaret hesitated. She wanted to stay. She felt something was off. She felt uncomfortable about these two people in that booth. She thought they seemed to be eavesdropping on Jennifer and Eliza. But then she knows that the girls didn't seem to think anything was wrong and they were in good spirits you know later Tim and Margaret neither of them recalled seeing any food or drinks on the men's table and I really identify with Margaret I get the feeling that she's a very attentive person she just might have picked up on things without even quite realizing why but she just felt unsettled about those two individuals in that booth and I think her feelings were justified now Tim mentions leaving again and Margaret agreed. And as they left, she looked at her watch. It was 1047 right there. That is important to me because Margaret felt the need to mark the time. And that shows to me that she felt right then and there that something was wrong. She didn't just look back and think after she found out about the murders that something was wrong. She felt something that night. Because I think That This can happen sometimes after a witness finds out that a crime occurred. They can sometimes impart like a sinister flair onto a completely innocent person, even unintentionally. But I don't think that's what's happening here with Margaret. Because I know this is going to sound crazy, but when I hear something weird, like a speeding car or a loud bang or something, I always check the time so I can know later when that happened. And I think Margaret might have been doing the same thing that I do. So the closing policies of the yogurt shop chain state that the front door should be locked at 1050 with the key left inside the lock and a closed sign would be placed in the window. When firefighters arrived at the scene, the door was locked and the key was found later inside the lock. One of the girls, it was assumed it was Jennifer because she was a pretty strict follower of the employee's closing guidelines, took a step stool over to the yogurt dispensers and began to empty and clean them. And it's assumed Eliza was using a rag to wipe down the counter. And that rag would be abandoned on the counter, molded to the shape of a hand. The rag was abandoned because evil had just entered the yogurt shop. The investigators would later see this scene with the rag on the counter, the open yogurt dispenser, and the cash register open with the till missing, with coins laying all over the ground. This shows that the killers approached the girls pretty soon after that last customer left because they were still in the very early stages of cleaning, with the yogurt dispensers just having started to be cleaned. But one of the biggest questions around this case is, did the killers enter the shop after Margaret and Tim left? Or were the killers there the whole time, in that booth, just waiting to make their move? Of all the customers that night, Tim and Margaret are the most important in my opinion. Because it is very likely that they caught a glimpse of the murderers sitting in that booth. Today, this seems to be a pretty commonly held theory. It makes sense that the killers were already in the store. Because all the other tables had been wiped down, napkins refilled, and the chairs were turned upside down on the tabletops. Only the table where Margaret and Tim saw those two men sitting has no upturned chairs. And from pictures, it looks like the napkin holder may have been empty. Why? Because those men were still sitting in that table and the girls never got around to cleaning it. Because when the men got up, they got up to attack those girls. These two men have never been identified. That's all of our witnesses we have that came into the shop that night. The investigation and processing of the crime scene continues. And I will get into that part more when I talk about the trials. So for now, it's just a little overview of what was found. While the autopsies are being performed back at the crime scene, a shell casing was retrieved from a clogged drain under the sink near where Amy's body had been located. It's a casing for a 380. As they're processing evidence, the investigators decide on 13 specific items about the crime that will be held back from the public. And these items, they slowly begin to trickle out to the point where we now know the complete list. But I'm going to go over these 13 items. Item 1 was how and where the fire started, which doesn't even seem like a valid holdback item because the police can't really ascertain either of these for sure. I mean, they didn't even determine if an accelerant had been used. So how are we going to, how are you going to hold back how and where the fire started when you don't know? Kind of silly. Seriously. If the first holdback item was something that the investigators couldn't even determine, you know, how the fire was started, what the hell's the second holdback item going to be? The identities of the killers? But item two was that the key was still in the front door when the firefighters arrived on the scene. Item three was the amount of money taken from the store. A forensic audit would determine that it was approximately $540. Item four was the arrangement of the girls' bodies. Item five was what was used to tie up the girls'. Item six and seven was that the office key was under the cash register, but no one had entered the office. Item eight was that two of the girls' underwear was missing. Item nine was that both a twenty two and a three hundred eighty caliber gun was used in the crimes. Item 10 was that Amy's brother's leather bomber jacket that she had borrowed from him that night was not at the crime scene. Item 11 was that there was a bruise under Amy's chin. And I don't think I mentioned that earlier, but it is part of how, like I said, Amy appears to have been treated differently than the other girls. She had a bruise under her chin, and she had been strangled, and none of the other girls appeared to have been strangled. I also kind of wonder if the severe burning of the bodies might have hid bruises and evidence of strangulation on on the more burnt victims, but I really don't know. Item 12 was the fact that Amy had been strangled, and what was used to strangle her. Item 13 was Amy was shot two times with two different guns. And like I said, almost immediately, this information started to become public knowledge. Some of the holdback information even appeared in the local papers days after the murders, including an article citing a police source that described what the girls had been tied up with. It was their undergarments. And that the front door was locked and that the back door was open when firefighters arrived. The police themselves released to the public days later that only Amy had been shot twice, which wasn't... Like a specified holdback item, but I don't know if it helped the public or the investigation really to release that information. The leaks of basically all of the holdback information, I mean, part of those are due to the eventual trial when a lot of information comes out. But even before that, the holdback information was becoming widely known almost immediately after the murders. Some of these initial leaks are due to loose lips in the investigation. We can't tell exactly where the leaks come from. It could be the firefighters, the EMS responders, or the police themselves that are letting this information trickle out. Also, when people are questioned as potential suspects, some of this information comes out during the questioning and it eventually ends up on the street, which is ridiculous. Holdback information should never be supplied to a suspect. I mean, it's the point of holdback information. It's how you confirm a confession, for God's sakes. But it happened here. And these leaks, they're really going to hurt the investigation. In the press, the police initially report that they believe the murders are related to crack cocaine. Like a crackhead looking for drug money, I think? But I mean, that makes so little sense. Because a desperate crackhead wouldn't think to set the place on fire to destroy evidence. So I just think that's a, hey, it's the 1990s, let's pretend all crime is related to crack or something. Anyway, a national dispatch was sent out across the country to all law enforcement agencies asking for any information about similar cases in other states. And to me, in my opinion, there are some similarities to the Las Cruces bowling alley massacre of four people in New Mexico in 1990. But there was no sexual assault in that case. But there was a robbery, you know, of a bowling alley, you know, public business with multiple deaths by gun. And the killers set the place on fire before they left. And this was... This had happened right before the bowling alley opened. So it's also like not at the height of business. Yogurt shop happened as they were closing. The bowling alley massacre happened as it was opening. Other than that case, which is also unsolved, I have no idea of any really truly similar murders. Now the girls' funeral was held and all the girls except Eliza were buried in the same cemetery side by side. At the funeral, friends draped FFA jackets over their white caskets. And it was a joint funeral with over 1,500 people in attendance. At the graveside services, a song was played for each of the girls. And Barbara, that's Jennifer and Sarah's mom, she recalled, If she ever died, young Sarah had told her to play The Dance by Garth Brooks at her funeral. So it was played, If Tomorrow Never Comes by Garth Brooks was played for Jennifer. And for our girl that loved William, the song played for Eliza was Seven Spanish Angels. And we all know that little Amy, she loved George Strait. So her song was Baby Blue. Barbara, mother of Jennifer and Sarah, she just maintained truly the most beautiful level of composure and insight, saying that whoever committed this crime was never loved enough. And isn't that just absolutely true? And when the girls' high school basketball team came to Barbara's home to comfort the grieving mother who had lost both of her children, she took the time and explained the importance to these young girls of not having unwanted children. And I'm not going to get into the abortion debate, especially in light of the Supreme Court's recent ruling, but I think very few people look at the idea of unwanted children from the side of the unwanted child and the impact a truly unwanted child can have on the world. These unwanted children don't get the childhood and love that a child needs. They become the monsters of tomorrow, you know, eventually murdering much wanted and much loved children. The investigation continues. and A task force was assembled to focus solely on this murder. Honestly, I listened to one podcast. I mean, I read books and I read articles, but I also listen to podcasts about crimes. And I listened to one that said they thought that Austin only had two homicide detectives at this time. I was just like, that is like the dumbest thing I've heard because like it's a town of 500,000 people at this point. Much smaller than it is now. But do you really think a town of half a million people has two homicide detectives? And honestly do any investigation on the case, and I know the name of four homicide detectives that work this case. I know the names of four people that worked this case. So why would you possibly think they only had, this is a tiny department, they only had two homicide detectives. But anyway, so task force is assembled with more than two detectives. Twelve billboards were donated, and the faces of the four girls appeared on each billboard with the line, Who killed these girls? Along with their reward amount of $25,000 and a tip line number. Also, who killed these girls? It's going to become a reoccurring, I don't know if I want to say tagline, but reoccurring phrase used in relation to these murders. And it's also the title of a terrific book about this crime written by beverly lowry which is really one of my main sources for my episodes on the yogurt shop murders anyway back to the billboards not long after the billboards were posted the tv show 48 hours expressed interest in featuring the murder on the program and permission was granted but the show didn't help develop any new leads Now, at this time, the police started receiving confessions from wackos claiming all sorts of stuff that never happened. These type of confessions are fairly common in famous cases, but they are a -a megawatt waste of time and take away from the investigation, and they're not in any way harmless. So, while the police are dealing with all these false confessions, the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit was called in to make a profile of the killer, and this profile would be published in the Austin newspapers. First, it starts with, There is more than one killer... And one of the killers had a dominant personality. Now, the rest of the profile mainly describes this dominant killer. First, he has less than a high school education. He has a history of discipline problems, probably with anger issues, maybe combined with substance abuse issues. Also, he has little impulse control and will act out without considering the potential ramifications of his actions. The killer gets into fights, but he avoids fights that he may lose. He either seeks weaker opponents or he waits to lash out when he has his friends around to help him. He has a history of unemployment or he's had to change jobs frequently because he's unreliable and he's got a volatile personality. He lives at home with either his parents or some type of other older figure, maybe a grandparent, has some level of a criminal record, could be fire-related crimes... And he has a past that includes abuse towards friends and girlfriends or loved ones, especially women, such as abuse of his mother, grandmother, girlfriends, sisters. The suspect was familiar with the area around the yogurt shop, and he took very little pride in his own physical appearance. And when talking about this dominant killer, Lieutenant Andrew Waters said, "...he is under a tremendous amount of stress." from fear of detection and apprehension because the commission of this crime may not have gone as planned. The offender is very concerned about the loyalty of his accomplices because he knows they regret their involvement in this crime. At a press conference, Sergeant John Jones said, It would be safe to say an apprehension is eminent. We're real confident this case will come to an end real soon. In reality, They had no idea who the killers were, and no real solid leads. But the FBI had told Jones to project an air of confidence to make the killers nervous, make them think that the police were closing in on them. In hindsight, it was probably maybe a statement that shouldn't have been made, or at least the parents should have been warned that it wasn't true. And perhaps they were. The statement didn't affect the case, so it doesn't really matter. And I kind of like to think of the killers thinking that they were in the crosshairs of the police. Let them be scared, They sure as hell scared those girls that night. You know, it's their turn. Days later, Jones would deny that he ever made that statement. And only years later would he admit he did make this statement, but he was following the suggestions of the FBI. And you know what? With the theory being that there was a dominant killer and a remorseful follower, this statement about being close to an arrest makes sense to me. To get that remorseful guy to confess and seek a deal and rat out on his dominant friend, It didn't work, but it could have. And I feel bad for Sergeant Jones. He caught a lot of shit for that statement, but it was a logical tactic. A composite sketch was made of the man that some witnesses had saw waiting in an older model light-colored car outside the yogurt shop that night. And this car was waiting, it was after 9 o'clock, the time when most of the other stores had already been closed. So it was a little suspicious, but we don't really know what this means. The guy could have been waiting for somebody that was inside the yogurt shop. But in a case like this, you take everything you have. The witness sat down with an artist and a sketch was made of this guy. Now this sketch, it catches the eye of police officers that work in the sex crimes unit because they say they had a composite sketch of a wanted man in a rape case that looked very similar to the yogurt shop sketch. I want you to keep in mind, this isn't someone saying, we have a suspect that looks like that guy. It's two sketches that look alike, which is different, okay? so the yogurt shop investigators want to speak to these suspects in the rape case based on the similarity between the two sketches. Now, this rape suspect, he was wanted for a really, truly horrific attack that occurred about two and a half weeks before the murders. A woman was, I say allegedly, because I don't know the outcome of the case, but I think she was. No, a woman wasn't allegedly. I'm taking that back. A woman was raped at gunpoint, by three Hispanic men after being picked up outside a heavy metal bar called the Cavity Club, which is truly one of the worst names for a club. I never get like innuendo and stuff. I always think it's like sexual related so i'm almost always wrong and like more perverted than need be but like what is a cavity club like is this like a butthole reference off-putting like it can't be dental what are we talking about here anyway the rapists tricked the girl into getting into their vehicle offering her a ride home and she only agreed because it was during a major rainstorm and she had to walk home it was just gonna be like in downpouring rain so she agrees to go with these guys but they never took her home instead they drove around repeatedly raping the woman at gunpoint, and then they dropped her off in san antonio and in an oddly chivalrous move, the rapist gave our ten dollars for bus fare home. I guess thanks. The three rapists were identified as Mexican men that belonged to a motorcycle gang. And one guy was still in the U.S. while the other two had fled to Mexico. So the district attorney in Travis County that covers the Austin area, so that's the district attorney that would be covering the yogurt shop murders. He's also the district attorney that's in charge of this Cavity Club uh, rape investigation. He agreed to turn over the Cavity Club case to the Mexican government for them to prosecute. And I say, what? the hell the crime occurred completely in texas and there is an open investigation of the murder of four teenagers where they want to question these guys and i will say this i'm not even saying it's because of the yogurt shop murders but what happened to this woman is also horrific she thinks someone's given her a kindness giving her a lift in a rainstorm and three guys brutally rape her for hours and driving her all around town this needs to be prosecuted these people aren't okay people But anyway, I don't want them loose in the United States. I don't want them loose in Mexico. You know what I mean? Like, just because they left the country, I'm I'm not like, oh, I don't care anymore. No, because they're going to be doing shit to the people down there in Mexico like this. You know, you don't just attack a woman and gang rape her. and You're like, never do anything bad again in your life. You don't just do that. You're like, but other than that, he was a, he was a gentleman. So in my opinion, this agreement where the Cavity Club case will be taken over by the Mexican government is, I, I don't know how to say other than, I just think it's stupid. I mean, what the hell did Travis County get out of it? They were allowed to file an order of detention that, if granted, would permit the U.S. authorities to question the men about a different crime, in this case, the yogurt truck murder. But in reality, the authorities in Texas struggled to ever get access to these men. It just seems like a horrible deal. But Mexico was refusing to extradite them, and this was the only option. And I really think that it bungled the whole Cavity Club rape case, because these men should have been tried in Texas for the rape. And they weren't. And I just feel like the rape victim was totally ignored. Where is the punishment for these men? They committed their alleged crimes in Texas. They should face punishment there, not in Mexico. Because the sentences in Mexico are much shorter than here. And you can bribe your way out of jail. How the hell does that rape victim feel when she hears this? Does she have to go to Mexico to testify? It's insanity. Also, now the Austin police have to go through the channels of the Mexican government if they ever want to talk to these guys about the yogurt shop murders. Honestly, their potential connection to the murders is tenuous at best. The composite sketch of one of the alleged rapists looks very similar to a composite sketch of a guy that was sitting in a car outside the yogurt shop that night. I mean, very well could be nothing. It was a single guy in the car that night outside the yogurt shop at the strip mall. And I think it had to be at least three attackers that killed the girls inside the shop based on how the girls were controlled. Even if we don't get into DNA and all the DNA that's left at the crime scene, I don't think one man would be able to physically subdue four girls in the way that happened that night. Now, I do understand, once you have a gun, and once you have control of one of the girls, you have control of all of them. I just think when they saw things where they weren't getting out of there, I think the girls would have done something. I don't think one person could have done this. Also, When science advances and we get more DNA uh, results, the rape kits and DNA tests from the bindings on the girls will prove that there were at least three male killers in the yogurt shop that night, not one Mexican, you know, sitting out in a car. In October of 1992, two of the Mexican men were arrested for the yogurt shop murders in Mexico, and they were also charged with a cavity club rape. Now, these are just the two men that had fled to Mexico. The man that had remained in the United States, he is never apprehended. That third suspect, still at large, We never get him. He never gets tried for the Cavity Club rape. And he never gets, I don't think he ever gets questioned. No, he doesn't. He never gets questioned about the yogurt shop murders either. But see, Mexico is refusing to extradite these guys that, you know, they just confessed to the yogurt shop murders, but Mexico refuses to extradite them because they would almost certainly face the death penalty here. And Texas actually executes people. It's not one of those states that has the death penalty and it's, you know, effectively a life sentence. In Texas, when you get the death penalty, you get the death penalty. And there are lots of countries that oppose the death penalty and won't extradite accused persons to the U.S. because of that. But generally, an agreement is made between the U.S. and the foreign country where we agree not to seek the death penalty in that specific case. Now, I don't know if that was offered here, but I would like to think that it was. I mean, I strongly oppose the death penalty, and I know that the victim's families were okay with it. That's their decision, really, because I really think if there was ever a case for it, it's this case. But really, the main motivator here should be just getting these killers off the streets forever. So if you have to take the death penalty off the table to get access to these guys, take it off the table. I honestly don't think that we should have ever have informed the Mexican government that these gentlemen were suspects in the yogurt shop murders. I think we should have left it at they were the suspects in the cavity club rape because I feel like there's a chance we could have extradited them back to Texas if Mexico thought they were, I'm going to say only it's in quotes, only facing rape charges and not murder charges, which would end up in the death penalty. I also am not 100% sure I'm right with this. Mexico might want to handle this stuff themselves, but I think if they thought it was just going to be I keep saying just, but you know what I'm saying here. I'm not minimizing the rape, but I mean, thank God the gal that was assaulted in the cavity club attack, she's alive. So, you know, I'm I'm not minimizing what happened to her, but I'm sure she's happy she made it through it. I mean, I'm happy too. But my point is, if they thought it was lesser charges that wouldn't involve an execution, if they had no idea that we thought they were hooked up with the yogurt shop case, maybe they would have handed them over. And I don't know why Texas is... Just showing their hand. First, they're letting all the holdback information slip out, and then they're giving an excessive amount of information to the Mexican government. They don't need to know this shit. They don't need to know anything about this potential relation to the yoga shop murders. Okay, so one of the Mexican suspects actually confessed to the murders in front of reporters. Then the Mexican government made an announcement that the accused had, this is a quote, forced the girls to submit, then he raped them, tied them up and shot them. This statement ran on the local news channels in Austin. The police in Austin had been holding back the fact that rape was involved in the attack. I also don't know if they had ever mentioned at this point that the girls had been some of the girls had been bound. But what's important is this is how the families first found out about the rapes on the local news. Thank you, Mexico. Wait, I misstated that. I meant to say Fuck you, Mexico. You couldn't have handled this in a worse way. The sexual assaults weren't exactly an example of information the police were trying to hold back. It wasn't one of the 13 key pieces, but it wasn't information that was publicly known beyond this point, and it wasn't something that the families had been told. This is the first time the families hear of this, and the first time they truly get confirmation that there had been some level of sexual assault was when the four suspects are arrested and the indictments are sought after them about like eight, nine years after the murder. So I just don't like how this happened at all, how they heard this. And I don't like the fact that there's no confirmation for them either way at this point. It didn't need to be said. That's all Mexico it didn't need to be said. Now down in Mexico, they have a detective from Austin. And now this guy, he requested that Chuck Myers, you know, the guy from the ATF come down as well. And he brings along two detectives that speak Spanish to help with interpreting. Because they're going to question in Mexico. They're going to finally get to question these two guys that are in custody. Now, the head of the Austin Task Force, John Jones, I think he's like, honestly, I think he really wanted to get his butt down there. But he had to remain in Austin. Because they didn't want to see him going down there. Press gets wind of that. And they're going to blow this up to being maybe a bigger lead than it actually is. So I get the point of not sending him down there, even though he wants to go. Because personally, I would want to go too. I wouldn't get my personal opinion and take a what, face-to-face what I feel if these people are telling the truth or not. So anyway, we got three detectives from Austin down in Mexico. And we got Chuck Myers from the ATF. And while they're questioning these guys investigators in Mexico requested that Jones release the full autopsy report to the Mexican officials. Jones doesn't want to do this. And he absolutely refuses. And I think this creates a little bit of friction between Jones and the other detectives on the case. But honest to God, he was 100% right. I think that everything in that report, once it got down to Mexico, It's going to leak to the press. I mean, they'd already leaked about the fact some of the girls were sexually assaulted. The officials in Mexico could have fed information to these guys and beat confessions out of them. And the case would be considered solved and closed. I mean, and just keep in the back of your mind, there really is not that much that ties them to the crime. One of them just looks like a composite sketch of a guy that was in a car in the strip mall parking lot. No one picked anyone out of a lineup. They were very likely terrible men. They were accused of kidnapping and raping a woman at gunpoint. Terrible men. But there is very little to tie them to the girls' murders. And while I want to see these men go away, get off the streets, go to jail, we're not helping anybody when we send the wrong people to prison for these murders. Because like everybody knows, you're just letting the murderers walk free. After a day full of questioning, the investigators from the U.S., one day of questioning, and they're convinced these guys didn't commit the crimes. But that didn't stop a request from heaven, come up, be like, oh, let's send the autopsy report down to Mexico. No, let's not. Thank you, John Jones. They confessed, but even, they didn't even know how many girls were killed. Pretty basic stuff was wrong in the confession. Then the guy that confessed, you know, in front of the media, he retracted his confession, saying that he had been tortured during the flight to Mexico. Plastic bags were placed over their heads, suffocating them, and threats were made claiming that they needed to confess or their wives, sisters, and daughters would be raped. You know, a classic Mexican-style interrogation. The American investigators, they returned to the U.S., but the investigation down in Mexico continued for years, and the two men were convicted of the Cavity Club rape and abduction. The third perpetrator was never captured. I don't know what their sentences are. I had a hard time tracking that down. I did put effort in, and if people want me to go back and put more effort in, I I will try harder, but, um... I don't speak Spanish, so that's a difficulty in reading things. I know that they were convicted and they were sentenced. I don't know how long it took them to buy their way out of prison, but let's hope it was at least a long weekend in there. So it appears that nothing concrete ever came of the yogurt shop murders investigation in Mexico. And when investigators from the U.S., you know, from Texas requested updates on the charges, the Mexican officials just basically ignored them understandably the families of the girls were upset about the lack of information coming out of mexico the families decided to get together and compose a letter that they would ultimately be sent to mexico's attorney general and it's easy to understand how the families would feel mexico isn't supplying them any information and according to all the press this was the biggest lead that the police had had up to this point point. and the families they want to do something to provoke a response it was just a desperate plea for help but i think it may have annoyed law enforcement maybe not all of law enforcement, but I think elements of it could have been kind of pissed with them. I don't think John Jones thought that it was incorrect to send the letter. Not speaking for him, but I got that feeling. I want to emphasize again, we got nothing further on the yogurt shop murders by making this deal with Mexico. All we did was have two violent kidnapper rapists avoid trial for a crime they committed in Texas by making an agreement with a foreign government. I know what they're thinking. That these people know something about the murders. But they didn't. And instead, I think we might have increased the trauma of a victim of a gang rape. Which, I mean, there's no words for that. You got nothing for further hurting somebody a lot more than need be. And acting like their crime that happened to them wasn't good enough. That there were more important crimes. And I do understand that murder is more serious. But these are the guys that raped her. We have no idea at all if they had anything to do with the murders. I just, I think this was mishandled is the best way to put it. In May of 1993, it was announced that the Yogurt Shop Task Force would be disbanded with only the head of the task force, you know, John Jones remaining on the case. And I want to tell you, i am this is what bothers me because I think sometimes when you're not getting new leads in, you do have to just say, We're going to stop what we're doing. We're going to take another tact. But I don't know if disbanding the task force is the right option when it's not even a full year and a half since the crime. I think maybe, oh God, I act like I'm an expert on everything and I'm not. But before I would disband, I would have done at least three to six months of let's put more people on this. See if we can get anything. And if we can't, then we scale back drastically. Also, I don't think you ever take it down to leaving only one person on the case. Because that person always needs somebody that can be feeding things off and helping them. And, well, I run this down. You run this down. I don't think this. Four girls were sexually assaulted. I'm saying girls. They're teenagers. Four girls were sexually assaulted, shot in the head, and set on fire. I don't think we just put one year, five months into this. You do this. I don't know what you wouldn't do. These people need to be caught just just not because of justice and that's what the girls deserve and that's what their families deserve but they need to be caught because we can't have these people out and about with normal folk. Now, John Jones, he would have remained on the case exclusively but no more overtime, they said. And I just think this is so unreasonable. This is a big case. It's too much for one man. He needs someone else to help him track things down, bounce off ideas. But on the other hand, I will say the task force hadn't produced any results, so it wasn't worth it. They had eliminated a lot of things. They had tracked up. They were getting all these tips in the beginning, and they had eliminated people. That's something. And Jones, he protested this change, saying the task force was necessary to follow up on all these leads. Because not all the leads that initially came in, it's not like they had exhausted all those leads. There were more that needed to be investigated. And the higher-ups, they responded by letting Jones work overtime hours on the case, which... I like that for Jones. He deserves some overtime. He seems like the guy who would work it regardless of whether or not he's going to be paid for it. He took his case home with him. That's what I'm going to say. But I really think instead of giving him just overtime, which yes, he should have been given that. Because he was going to work it either way. But I think, like I said, first, I said before you do a disbanding, you do a ramp up. And then you work through all those leads that haven't been investigated. Get through all those. And then if you can say, hey, not many more leads are coming in then we disband. But I don't think a case like this where children are assaulted and tortured in this way, I don't think we give up on that so lightly. I say at least have two people on it. Now in May of 95, that's two years after the the task force was disbanded, John Jones was removed from the case and the families were extremely upset about this as they had grown incredibly close to Jones and they trusted him. And Jones and Amy Ayer's dad were at a basketball game together and Amy's dad has turned to him and said, you know, you look terrible or something along those lines like, you know, you need to take care of yourself. And he's thinking this case is really wearing this man down. And I think it shows you just like how absolutely beautiful these families were that were involved in this. Because as much as Amy's dad wants this guy to figure out who the hell that did this, he recognizes this man's trying so damn hard. I like him. I don't want him to destroy himself and his life while he's doing this. You know, he thought, you know, that Jones needed to take some time for himself. And I think Jones started to realize that. I'm putting words in mouth right here. I feel like at the end of the day, Jones would have preferred having more help on the case as opposed to just being removed from it and somebody else do his job because he was being incredibly stressed out by this and I I can't even imagine this because he became so close with those family members and they were relying on him and he wanted to solve this for them but he wanted to solve it he didn't want to close it I think my listeners out there that have the five of you that stick through with me you understand the difference close a case. It could be solved. It could not be. You're just not investigating it anymore because you got somebody for it. But solved a case, that means something. And I think it means something to John Jones, too. So in May of 95, John Jones, he's off the case. And then in January of 96, so we're talking like seven months later, the investigation gets a new boost when Paul Johnson was appointed to reorganize the files and investigate any old leads that may have been prematurely dismissed a fresh investigation with new eyes was underway. The fresh eyes aren't always better. And I don't like the direction that Paul Johnson took with this case, but I think like, just like with John Jones, I think this is the type of case that can really absorb you. And I think he really wanted to solve it. And I think I'm just, I'm trying to impart kindness here. I think he wanted to see things that weren't there. So he could say he solved this and brought this relief to the families. But, he did, he just really, in all honesty, he ended up compounding their misery. So after poring over the database and files, Johnson found a tip that caught his eye, and the investigation turned to a group of teenagers. It's Maurice Pierce and his friends Michael Scott, Robert Springsteen, and Forrest Welburn. These four friends first fall onto the radar of the policeman on Saturday, December 14, 1991. Just eight days after the murders, Maurice Pierce was caught by an off-duty police officer who was working as a security guard at the North Cross Mall. While Maurice is caught with a loaded 22 caliber pistol in his jeans pocket, the officer confiscated the gun and all of Maurice's bullets and turned them over to the Austin Police Department. When asked why he was carrying a loaded gun at the mall, Maurice's reply was, just to be carrying it. Guns in pockets, people. It's the number one way to shoot your dick off. But still, idiots keep doing it. Dickless idiots. But anyway... In 1991, when he was questioned after being found with a gun at the mall, Maurice took a lie detector test and was questioned about his involvement in the yogurt shop murders and Maurice passed the polygraph. But in 1996, 1996, new investigator Johnson, he sends the polygraph transcript to another Austin police polygraph examiner. His name's Bruce Stevenson. This reanalysis of polygraph results concluded that while the results were scored as truthful in 1991, those standards were no longer in use, and the results in 1996 would be deemed inconclusive at best. This new analysis of the polygraph results convinced Johnson to move the investigation in a new direction that focused on these four suspects. Suspects that have been cleared years ago by previous investigators. And this is why, well, there's many reasons why, but this is one of the reasons why polygraphs can't be admitted in court because they're open to interpretation. In 1991, Maurice Pierce polygraph, truthful. 1996, it's at best inconclusive. So if we can just shop around, I know things advance in five years. But I don't think polygraphs did. You know why? Because they didn't. This is like forum shopping. Find somebody else to look at these results. See what they say. See if you get the answer you want. I mean, you get the answer you want, and you stop looking. I know that's pretty harsh of me to accuse the police of just searching for the results they want, but look at it this way they have a polygraph that was taken. The initial analysis of the polygraph results says that Maurice Pierce was telling the truth. He had nothing to do with the murders. The second analysis says he is lying, or it could be inconclusive. At this point, when you have two differing results, and one of them's kind of wavering, I would go ahead and get another opinion. But they didn't do that. And to me, it looks like as soon as they got something that looked like they could say Maurice Pierce was lying on that polygraph, they ran with it. But 1991... When Maurice Pierce said he had nothing to do with those murders, took a polygraph, and it was truthful. 96, things have changed, apparently. But have they? I'm going to leave you here now. And In our next episode, I'm going to talk about the four suspects that are arrested years after the murders.